Good morning. If you will take your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter number six, the fifth gospel found in the Bible, Isaiah chapter number six. We'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning, verses one through 13. Again, Isaiah six, verses one through 13. While you're finding Isaiah six, let me again uh, say, as your pastor said, my name is Travis Kearns and I serve as the associational mission strategist for the Three Rivers Baptist Association. I want to bring greetings on behalf of your 91 sister churches in the northern half of Greenville County, the western side of Spartanburg County, comprising about 250 staff members and about 40,000 people in those churches. So we're a strong group of churches, a strong association, and we function, the association does, to make sure, number one, that pastors do not feel alone. Believe it or not, one of the most lonely jobs on the planet is that of serving on a church staff. Because as, as I told students in seminaries for 15 years and told church planters for six years in Utah and have told ministry personnel for about 25 years, the people who love you when you're in ministry will never say a word and the people who hate you tell you every day. And so I would encourage you first and foremost to tell your pastors, tell Donald and Will and Mark how much you appreciate them and love them and if you don't like something about them, just keep your mouth shut. Just don't say anything at all. No, but uh, I am thankful to be here. I love coming to Abner Creek. Donald and I were texting last night. One of the things I love about Abner Creek is something that, believe it or not, less than 20% of Baptist churches around the world do. You do every Sunday. Did you know that less than 20% of Baptist churches around the world read any scripture at all before the time of the sermon? And yet you start with scripture. Scripture saturates the service. I know you hear it during the message and it closes the service. If we don't start and keep our foundation in and end in scripture, we will surely be lost. So I praise God that you do that. I'm thankful to have gotten to know Donald and Will and Mark over the last year and I look forward to getting to know them more. So I'm glad to be here this morning. But as I said, we're gonna look at Isaiah chapter 6, and we're doing something this morning that Christians around the world either have done in the last few hours or are doing now or will do over the next few hours, and that is to gather on the Lord's Day to worship. And when we come together for worship on the Lord's Day as believers in Christ, we do so for one purpose, and that is not to see what we can get out of worship. We gather together corporately as believers to see what we can put into worship, to worship the one true and living God. We worship him based on and because of his character and his words and his actions. When Christians gather though, we do so from various backgrounds and from different circumstances happening in our lives. I think about the excitement that Donald and his family experienced with the birth of a new one that I see right here. That's an exciting time in the life of a family. And as they gather with you this morning, they have excitement, maybe a little bit less sleep than they're used to over the last few years, but they gather with excitement. Also think, though, about those who are gathering with difficulties in life. Just yesterday, my doctoral supervisor that I, I learned under and then served with as a faculty colleague, his name is Ted Cable. He was at Southern Seminary in Louisville and now is at Southwestern Seminary. His wife died yesterday unexpectedly. And so he gathers with the church body this morning completely distraught, 
He and his wife were two unique individuals meant for each other and matched perfectly. And so we gather with different circumstances. But regardless of what may or may not be happening in our lives, we gather to worship the Lord and to learn from his word. And our text today in Isaiah 6 teaches us this very thing. We worship regardless of circumstance. We learn from God's word and we put that word into practice. So with that in mind, let's look at Isaiah 6, 1 to 13 to worship the Lord through his word, to discover what he would teach us and how we might put that into practice as we think about the subject of knowing God and knowing ourselves, knowing God and knowing ourselves. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word this morning as we look to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records these words. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out while the house of God was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render the hearts of the people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is devastated to desolation, and Yahweh has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or like an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word. God, as we gather around your word this morning, we ask that you would not let us run in front of the cross or lag behind, but you would keep us this morning at the feet of Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. So the first thing we'll see from our text today is that God's holiness demands our praise. God's holiness demands our praise. Look with me again at Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4. You'll note in verse number one that Isaiah says it's the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, why in the world would Isaiah mark this particular instance in his life by first beginning with the death of a king? Well, you see, the prophet Isaiah came from a very well-connected, very wealthy family in the ancient world. 
In fact, Isaiah may be from the wealthiest family of any of the prophets in all of Scripture. He may have even very well come from one of the wealthiest families in the ancient world. And what this means is, is that Isaiah would have known King Uzziah and that the king would have been a family friend. It's entirely possible that we, we don't know this with any certainty at all, that the king may have even dined in the home of Isaiah. Uzziah, this king that Isaiah mentions, reigned for 52 years. And the overwhelming majority of his time on the throne was marked with security and with prosperity. But if you've ever read 1st and 2nd Kings or 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you know that the way these kings work is things go well and then they fall apart. Or things never go well at all and they're all just completely falling apart. So towards the end of Uzziah's life and reign, other nations had risen to prominence, especially the nation of Assyria, and God's people were under threat. But then something happens in Uzziah's life, 2 Chronicles 26 and 2 Kings 15 record this. Uzziah had sinfully entered the temple in order to try and offer sacrifice that only the priests were given the ability to do. And because he had done so, while he's standing in the temple attempting to offer sacrifice and while the priests are openly exhorting him to leave, God strikes him with leprosy and sores begin to break out all over Uzziah's body. Now happening simultaneous with all of this, God's people had, starting had started to turn away from his word and from his law. And Isaiah is stricken with sorrow and with grief because his friend had died. And because God's people were turning away from their God. So where else would Isaiah turn other than the place to meet with God in the midst of sorrow? You see, in the Old Testament, God dwelled in the tabernacle. He dwelled in the temple once that structure was built. So Isaiah goes to that very place. And he continues in verse 1, and he says, He saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, this is an interesting way to phrase this because we know from a number of both Old and New Testament texts that God cannot be seen because he is spirit. We also know that, however, throughout the Old Testament, God appears to his people in various forms. He appears as a cloud or as smoke or as fire. He also appears, think about Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, as a man in the Garden of Eden. And in this instance, in Isaiah 6, God has appeared as a man seated on a throne. Now get this, the overwhelming majority of biblical scholars agree that this vision in Isaiah 6 of the Lord seen by Isaiah is nothing more and nothing less than a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ reigning on the throne. Isaiah, many of you know, writes the longest book of prophecy in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the second longest book in the Old Testament, second only to the book of the Psalms. And Isaiah, in, that, in this book, writes four what are known as suffering servant, or suffering servant songs, the servant songs of Isaiah. And what's interesting here is, is Isaiah, in chapter 6, gets a foretaste of this suffering servant about whom he would prophesy four other times in the book. You notice also that the Lord is seated on the throne. And what this means is, is that God is 
presently reigning and ruling over his creation. He's not an absentee landlord or an absent-minded professor. In the midst of the Thomas family celebrating a new little one coming into their lives, God was not taken by surprise. In the midst of my friend Ted Cable losing his wife yesterday, God was not taken by surprise. In the midst of your life, whatever may be happening, whether good or bad, God is not taken by surprise because he is at present, as Isaiah shows us here, seated on the throne, reigning and ruling in sovereign command over his creation. He is issuing royal proclamations concerning his will for his creation. Notice that Isaiah also mentions in verse number one that the Lord is high and lifted up. I don't do this, but you can do so later. If you were to flip over to Isaiah 52, 13, this is the first verse and the beginning of the longest of Isaiah's servant songs, you would read these words. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So yes, this is indeed a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ that Isaiah gets. And in fact, John 12, 41 proclaims this. John writes, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke about him. You'll also notice that in verse number one, the train of the road fills the temple. This is the translation the legacy standard gives us. However, that's a, a bit of a poor translation. The correct translation here for verse number one would be the hymn of the train of the robe fills the entire temple. So can you imagine the grand scale of what Isaiah must be experiencing? He's broken. He's seeking the Lord in worship. He enters the temple and he sees the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ on the throne, reigning over creation. He's high and lifted up. He's greatly exalted. And the sheer size of the hymn that little small edge on the bottom of pants or shirts or whatever it may be that folds up to make it an even line. That sheer size of the hem of the train of the royal robe of Christ fills the entire temple. And the temple was not a small structure. Isaiah must be completely overwhelmed. Notice in verse 2 some of the others who are involved here. In verse 2, Isaiah says, the seraphim stood above him. Now, seraphim are one particular type of angels described in the Bible with specificity. The other we just heard about from Revelation chapter 4, that's the cherubim. Cherubim are being covered with eyeballs. Seraphim are beings literally made of fire. The word seraph in Hebrew means to burn. And when you hit an I-M onto the end of that, that ending means the burning ones. These are angels literally made of fire. And notice that they have six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. Two of those wings cover the face so that these angels do not look on the presence and the glory and the majesty and splendor of God directly. With two of those wings, the angels fly so they don't walk in God's presence. Why then would you need, if you are flying, why would you need to have your feet covered? Because you're already not able to walk in God's presence because you're flying. In the ancient Hebrew, the word feet, you also see this in the book of Ruth, the word feet literally means from your chest to your knees. So, this is why Boaz gets startled when Ruth lays down at his feet. She doesn't lay down at his feet, she lays down across him. That would startle anybody. 
The same thing holds true here. These angels are literally covering themselves to show their humility before God. And in verse 3, we read about the action of the seraphim. They're echoing to each other. The singing is echoed back and forth about God's great attribute of holiness, perhaps the most fundamental of God's attributes. And we also read that the entire creation is filled with God's glory in verse 3. His glory is everywhere. We see it in Christ when the sun rises and sets, when we fellowship with other believers, when we see an unbeliever converted, and when we worship together, we see God's glory. And then in verse 4, we see how loudly the seraphim were singing. Notice what verse 4 says, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out. These angels were singing so loudly and with such emotion and such force that the foundation of the doorpost of the temple began to shake. Now the temple doors were not like doors we know of in our world today. They weren't about 8 to 10 feet tall. They weren't fairly thin and very easy to open. These were massive wooden structures, massive. So you can imagine what type of doorpost it would take to hold up these massive doors, and then imagine what type of foundation it would take to ground those doorposts that hold up those huge wooden doors. Their singing was so loud that those foundations began to shake. Now I think this is interesting, and I would only say this, that without resorting to pure anarchy and unrestricted charismatic practices, our worship should be loud and meaningful and thoughtful in the same way these angels are worshiping in Isaiah 6. If the created, get this, if the created yet unatoned for angels are worshiping with this depth, surely we as created and atoned for should worship with equal depth, equal mindfulness, and equal thoughtfulness. And the seraphim are proclaiming deep, meaningful, theological terms and words as they sing, not a mindless, pointless dribble of a chorus centered on humanity. Their song reflects their theology and their singular focus on God. Also see in verse 4 that the temple fills with smoke. Another indicator that the Lord is indeed there. Why are the seraphim singing so deeply and so loudly and with such force? Because God is holy and the angels are not. God's holiness demands their praise and it demands ours as well. Romans 3.23 tells us that all of humanity is riddled with sin. This means we are separated from God and must turn to him to fix the problem that we created. And as he changes our hearts, giving us the ability to turn to him, we realize how holy he truly is and how unholy we are and we worship. So first, God's holiness demands our praise. Secondly, we'll see that God's perfection requires our response. Look at Isaiah 6, 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. In this verse, Isaiah quickly realizes his situation is, how can we put it, bad. 
He's in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, and he knows the promise of Scripture that if any human sees God, that human will immediately be put to death. And so notice Isaiah's first words in this situation. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Now, if you and I were in this situation, we would walk into the temple. Maybe we're facing a difficult circumstance in life. We're looking to meet with the living God, and we see this vision, and my first thought would be, wow, this is cool. Or let me put out my phone so I can get this on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and everything else. People will not believe this. And we all know if there's no picture, it didn't happen. Isaiah's first response, though, is, woe is me, for I am ruined. He knows his sin. He understands the depth of his sin. He understands the consequences for that sin. It's nothing more or less than his death. And then notice the specific sin about which he is concerned. He's concerned about his speech. And he's concerned about the sinful speech of all the people. He then restates why he is undone. For my eyes have seen the king. And as he comes before the king of creation, Isaiah's response is that of realization of sin, same and sorrow for that sin, and immediate concern for his death. Isaiah responds to God's holiness by realizing that he is a sinner. And he cries out about his sin, hoping against hope that the Lord will forgive his breaking of God's commands. Brothers and sisters, Romans 3.23 and 6.23 remind us that we too are in the same situation as Isaiah. We are all sinners. We have all broken God's commands and we all, each of us, deserve immediate death. And as did Isaiah, we should cry out to the Lord and beg for forgiveness of our sins. So secondly, God's perfection requires our response. Thirdly, in verses 6 and 7, we'll see that God's grace brings our forgiveness. Here is the part where Isaiah has his eyes open to God's grace. Look again with me at verse number 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. So one of these seraphim leaves the company of his worshiping colleagues and he goes to the altar. He uses a pair of tongs and the seraphim reaches into the flaming altar with these tongs and removes a red hot coal. Now why would the angel whose hand is made of fire need to reach into the flaming altar with tongs. The angel's hand can't be burned. It's made of fire. The angel reaches into the altar with tongs because the angel realizes the altar is holy and the angel is not. And the angel does not want to defile the holy altar. Now again, let's consider Isaiah's circumstance. He's broken. He's emotionally distraught. He enters the temple to seek God's wisdom. He enters for worship during what might be one of the lowest moments in his life, and he sees the pre-incarnate Christ. He hears this roaring worship of angels. He experiences the temple filling with smoke. He's overwhelmed by all these sensations. He then realizes he's a sinner and has seen the Lord and proclaims his imminent death. And then, one of the flying, flaming angels approaches him with a red-hot coal from the altar. Now, If I'm Isaiah, and I'm honest, 
my first thought is very likely, this is gonna hurt. I've just said I deserve to die. And here comes a flying, flaming angel with a red hot coal in tongs. This will not be an enjoyable experience. Notice what happens in verse seven. And he, the angel, touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The angel touched Isaiah's mouth and proclaimed his forgiveness. Now, do you remember from just a few verses ago the specific sin about which Isaiah had concern? It was his speech. From where does your speech come? Your lips. Now, what's happened here? His lips, the specific sin over which he was broken has been touched by the grace of Christ and forgiveness has been proclaimed. Imagine Isaiah's emotional condition after hearing your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Again, if it's us, we're probably thinking, well, that didn't hurt as badly as I thought it would. He's probably filled with shock and he's crying tears of joy and he has no adequate words for his thankfulness and he's speechless, he has utter disbelief. The question is, was it the grace of the angel who proclaimed Isaiah's forgiveness? Absolutely not. It was the grace of the pre-incarnate Son of God, the one Isaiah was staring in the face. The grace of God brought Isaiah's forgiveness. Romans 6.23 tells us of the grace of God bringing our forgiveness as well. It says this, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2 says the same thing, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Church, our salvation is not of ourselves. Our forgiveness is not of our choosing. It is not of our works. As Isaiah has discovered and as Paul proclaimed, our salvation, our forgiveness is due wholly, completely, and totally to one thing and one thing alone, and that is the grace of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So thirdly, God's grace brings our forgiveness. Fourth and finally, we'll see that God's forgiveness should lead us to share. God's forgiveness should lead us to share. Look at Isaiah 6, 8. If you've ever heard a verse from the book of Isaiah, it's likely this verse you have heard. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. The pre-incarnate Christ calls for someone to share the miraculous news of forgiveness, this great news of God's grace. Now, for lack of being a little difficult this morning, Isaiah then does something that no person with freshly seared, charbroiled lips would ever want to do. He talks. If your lips have just been burned off, your last action on the planet should be to want to move your mouth. If you've ever burned any part of your body, you know that that doesn't feel good and you don't want to move it around other than to get it under the coldest water you can find as quickly as possible. So with the scent of burnt flesh in his nostrils and the pain of roasted lips running through his veins, Isaiah hears the call of God and he responds immediately. 
Notice that Isaiah has no idea where God is calling for someone to go. Isaiah has no idea what God is calling him to say. Isaiah has no idea what circumstances God is calling him to jump into headfirst. All Isaiah knows is God is calling and he must go. Why? Because he has experienced what R.C. Sproul once called, quote, the true pain of repentance and the true joy of forgiveness. And when Isaiah responds, here am I, send me, then God offers the details. And let's just say the details are not exactly uplifting. Look again at verses 9 and 10. He said, go and tell the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render their hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Isaiah is told to go and share the message of God's grace, his repentance, and his forgiveness, but the people won't listen. They won't understand. They won't repent. And based on this new information, Isaiah's question to begin chapter 6, verse 11 is not at all unexpected. Then I said, Lord, how long? How long, God, though you've forgiven me, though I've been touched by your grace and given your forgiveness, how long do I have to go and talk to people who won't listen? And notice how long Isaiah is told he'll proclaim until cities are devastated and empty, until the land is barren, until the Lord has removed the inhabitants far away into exile, and until the land is said to be forsaken. How long is that? A long time. Years, decades. It will not be an easy ministry. It will be a long road with nearly impassable navigation, and yet then comes the promise of the last verse in our chapter, verse number 13. Look at that verse again with me. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. It will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or like an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in stump. One of the running themes throughout the book of Isaiah is the remnant will remain. In fact, Isaiah has a child later on in the book and they name him a remnant will remain. That remnant is said to be one-tenth. There will be people who will hear there will be people who, are, who will respond. God promises that there will be a portion to Isaiah who will hear, be changed, fall on their faces, and be forgiven. God also tells Isaiah, though, they will be tested and put through trials and tribulations, but they will remain steadfast and will worship the Lord as he commands. Brothers and sisters, as those forgiven by the grace of Christ, just like Isaiah, we are to share about the grace and mercy, and, well, the grace and mercy of Christ with those we're around. And just like Isaiah, the majority of those with whom we share will not respond positively, but some will. And we have no idea who will and will not respond. It is not our role to elicit regeneration and repentance. It is our role to share. The role of regeneration and repentance is given solely to the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. So like Isaiah, it is our role to share. We do not manipulate. We do not play on emotions. We don't drag people into heaven kicking and screaming. We share the gospel message of Christ. 
And we know that when his word is shared, it will not come back void. Either it will harden hearts further or it will change a heart from stone to flesh. A person will see his or her sin and will fall on his or her face before the living Christ. We proclaim his goodness, his holiness, his wrath on our sins, and his grace offered through Christ. We proclaim the gospel message of Jesus knowing that due all to God's grace and providence, some will indeed respond. And we do so because we've been forgiven. So fourthly, God's forgiveness leads us to share. When we know that God is holy and we know ourselves that we are not, And when we know that God has forgiven our sins, all due to his grace and his kindness and his providence and his sovereignty, and we realize the forgiveness that we've been given, we share the message with everyone with whom we come into contact. God's word this morning tells us simply that we need to know him and know ourselves. We respond to his holiness. We love him for who he is. And we sing his praises and we share his message. Pray with me together this morning. Lord, we do ask, as we have read your word, as we have studied it, and Lord, if you're willing, as we've learned from it, Our God, we ask that you would move us to recognize that you are holy and we are not. You would help us with the realization that you have indeed forgiven us, not because of anything you saw in us, but because of your sovereign choice from before the foundation of the world. Our God, we thank you. Those of us who are here this morning who might be listening online, Lord, those of us who have been forgiven and who are in relationship with Christ, God, we thank you for forgiving us. God, thank you for not holding our sin against us. Thank you for looking at us through Christ and not seeing us for who we are. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, move us to share with everyone around us the simple message that we have been created to be in relationship with our creator, the Holy One of Israel. But we broke that relationship because of our selfish desires, because of our sin. And though we have tried countless ways to span the gap created because of our sin, it is only through Christ that we can reenter a right relationship with you. We thank you for his coming, for his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We thank you that he has fulfilled all of the promised prophecies of the Old Testament. Lord, help us to call others to action, to repent of their sins, and to place faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone, so that they may know God and know themselves. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us in Christ, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.